There is a bit of explicit content in the podcast you are about to hear. It's Tuesday, June 5th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I don't usually get into the various forays of Sarah Huckabee Sanders from that podium. You know, just because she's lying, she's usually lying. She's not usually lying, but she's so often lying. Well, what am I going to do? Take the time to point out that she's lying while she's lying? It's as if I were a sportscaster playing NHL highlights, and the whole time I just kept saying over and over, this guy's skating. Look at that guy. He's skating. Kick save. More impressive because he's skating. Oh, it's a goal. Goalie could not make the save. Keep in mind, he's on skates. But I do want to play this one exchange because I think it really gets at how to know when the administration will be truthful, when they won't be, and how to process it really put that out there. So this was about the revelation that Donald Trump dictated a letter that Sarah Huckabee Sanders from the podium said he did not dictate. And uh, Josh Dossie of The Post asked her about it. If you say one thing from the podium that it wasn't dictated by the president, there's a lot of you saying something entirely different, contradicting you. How are we supposed to know what to believe? How can we believe what you're saying from the podium if there's lawyers are saying it's entirely inaccurate. Once again, I can't comment on a letter uh, from the president's outside counsel. I direct you to them to answer it. John? But Sarah, the words are literally, you said he did not dictate. The lawyer said he did. What is it? I'm not going to respond to a letter from the president's outside counsel. We purposely walled off, and I would refer you to them for comment. All right, that's a good question. You told us it didn't happen. His lawyers admitted it did. How do we believe you? Well, the answer clearly is you can't but you can't say that. So she said she refused to get into a back and forth, but because she didn't even engage with the question at all, she didn't even get into a fourth. Perhaps she anticipated that he wouldn't like the answer and that would be the back. But when someone says, I'm not getting into a back and forth, at least they usually give you the courtesy of engaging in the fourth part. The Trump White House, with this and the Stormy Daniels denial, which was later an admission, oh yeah, he did know about the payments from Cohen, they're telling you, they're telling us how we should all process what they say, what the standards are. And the standards are this. If they're not saying it under oath, you cannot believe them. Giuliani said this to George Stephanopoulos. I mean, he said it one way, but really what he was saying is, If we are not under oath, there is no reason for you to believe us. Here's that clip. For example, if you said that, and that's, again, the danger of being interviewed. If, if, uh, gosh, if I say something wrong on this show, and sometimes I did, George, in the past, not this time. We all do. We all make mistakes. (laughs) When we make mistakes, we try to make corrections. If you were the FBI, (laughs) if you were the FBI, my goodness, they could prosecute me for the mistake. They'd say, of course, it was a lie. So uh, that's why, that's the point of trying to make. They're trying to say it's a private It's non-governmental. It's not under oath. It's not under uh, interview with the FBI, like um, some of the prosecutions have been interviews with the FBI. Uh, Martha Stewart was under oath. See that letter that he lied about? That's exactly why we can't put the president under oath. I like that Giuliani was kind enough to point that out to us. And it is not only the reason you can't believe the administration or the president unless he's under oath. It is also the explanation for why the president will never be put under oath, because you cannot believe him. On the show today, I will spiel about the new Miss America competition. Oh, yes. 
But this is the 50th anniversary of the RFK assassination. So let us delve into a meeting that I didn't know about. It took place five years before his death, and it was between RFK and the black intelligentsia of the time. And to orient us about that meeting, our guide will be Michael Eric Dyson. Robert Kennedy consults Negroes here about North. James Baldwin, Lorraine Hansberry, and Lena Horne are among those who warn him of explosive situation. That was a headline above the fold in the New York Times in 1963 about a meeting, yes, between Robert Kennedy and a group of prominent, actually not civil rights leaders, more of artists and intellectuals. It's fleshed out and considered deeply from all angles in the new book, What Truth Sounds Like, RFK, James Baldwin, and our unfinished conversation about race in America, Michael Eric Dyson is the author. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. You, obviously, are a student of history, and this is your area. How much did you know about this meeting before you began looking into it for the book? So I'd I'd heard the story like everybody else. Man, there was a fiery meeting. It didn't turn out the way Kennedy wanted. I said, but I want to read a book about it. I mean, how come nobody has written a book about it? I said, well, guess guess it's got to be me. So... To cast this meeting, why did Kennedy go with famous, prominent African-Americans, but not the civil rights leaders by and large? Why did he go with Lena Horne and James Baldwin? Right. That's a great question. Luck of the draw to a certain degree. Now, here's what happened. Kennedy had met Baldwin at the White House because his brother's the president. He's the attorney general. And Kennedy and Baldwin kind of hit it off. They said, hey, we should talk further. Then... Baldwin from afar, watching with the rest of the nation, seeing what was going down with the ghoulish and goon-like squad of bigotry under Bull Connor in Birmingham, dashed off a telegram saying that the attorney general of the United States of America, the president, was not using his moral influence and force. They had to be held accountable until the Negro was recognized as a man, as they called us back then, as a human being. There would be no progress. And um, after the telegram, it was perfect timing, they issued to his literary agent an invitation for him to come to breakfast at the house of Kennedy in Virginia, you know. So they have a conversation. He said, well, you know, who are Negroes listening to? Who should we get together? And Baldwin mentioned, hey, they who are not leaders, right, who are not like the traditional leaders. I don't want King. I don't want, you know, Whitney Young or Adam Clayton Powell. Yeah. And then he said, look, you know what? I'm going to be in New York tomorrow. Why don't you get some people together and let's have a conversation to talk about the urban situation and the brewing chaos that is uh, there and the rage that is afoot. And Kennedy thought it's going to be great. I'm going to, you know, the Negroes will be grateful to us for what we've done. And they lit his ass up. They They, lit him up. So in the book, you uh, detail what his reaction in is in the moment, which is defensive at first. Then he sort of uh, is beaten into submission, Kennedy (laughs) is. He starts to listen. Uh, I understand how that plays out in the moment, but how does it affect his policies, his decisions for the next five years of his life? Yeah, that's a great point. So, yeah, he was pissed, but but here's the first policy he did, well, under subterfuge. He got J. Edgar Hoover to follow these people. Through FBI, he got an FBI dossier. Mm-hmm. You, you know, the, the FBI was still going on a pace under Jagger Hoover, and they didn't replace him or try to. He had so much power. And Kennedy promised uh, Vandiver, the governor of Georgia, I'm not going to use federal power to intervene on segregation here. 
And then he's at the same time, he's telling the black leaders, hey, I'm going to do some stuff about civil rights. So he's equivocating, you know, on both hands, so to speak, uh, to be redundant. And uh, it told on him in terms of his policies. He didn't really want to put forth a civil rights bill. He was hemming and hawing. He was hesitating about it. So finally, things came to a head. And by the time Bobby Kennedy had this meeting, you know, the Negro leaders were like, you know, who were artists like Harry Belafonte and Jimmy Baldwin. No, we ain't grateful to you. You're messing up. Let me tell you why black people are attracted to rage. And they were full of rage themselves. Yeah. The, the immediate aftermath is he went to Lyndon Baines Johnson. They had some committee hearing, and he was like, where are the black people? How many people are here? How many people are you talking to? How many people hired? And lit him up. Now, the irony is he's lighting up a guy who LBJ had the Kennedys, you know, had, had Jack Kennedy not died, probably would have never become president. Right. And yet when he became president, arguably, I would make the argument, the greatest president for black people in the history of this country, even sure. more than uh, Lincoln. 64 uh, uh, Civil Rights Act, 65 Voting Rights Act, and in the aftermath of Ken, uh, King's death, the, the Fair Housing Act, that's the Holy Trinity. That's the Wayne Gretzky, you know, <laughs> hat trick of civil rights. So I'm reading this book, and I can't help but thinking through my lens, which is of a white man, that, yeah, Kennedy uh, probably was surprised and didn't understand the depths of the struggle. But in 1963, for a white man and for a white leader of power who has his own constituencies and people to deal with, that's about as best as America could have hoped for, I think. Well, no doubt. I mean, but see— and this is what uh, Baldwin and Lorraine Hansberry are saying. If you don't understand what we're saying, we have no hope because right, you're, right, you're right. the most informed white boy we know. When you teach woke white students, are you to some extent channeling what the people in that room did to Kennedy? Uh, maybe so. I mean, because some of them, exactly, they think they're woke and then they, oh, we got to get woker. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And some could say, well, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The people who are self-selected audience, they, the ones who are attracted to you are already woke anyway, but not all of them. Mm-hmm. And the ones who think they're woke may not be as woke as they think they are. And, I'm, and when they see me willing to challenge my own stuff. Dang, he's criticizing his own books. He's criticizing his own stances. Damn, what's he going to do to us? Oh, well, I'm going to cut it down. And I tell my students this, even though we have been characterized, mischaracterized as snowflakes, I tell this is a safe space for white students. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be thought of as racist because they disagree with some stuff we say. Now, and then I turn to the white students. However, I can't protect you from black students who point out the ludicrousity. Just as Mike Tyson said, the ludicrous. This is ludicrous of what you're saying. <laughs> so you got to subject yourself to honest conversation, and then you got to be willing to hear that it's problematic in a certain way. That's how we all grow. We all get challenged. We all think about it, and we all learn in an environment that has to be safe and protected, uh, because we need to have the ability to disagree with one another without tearing each other down. So there's a through line in this book, explicit and implicit, and also in a lot of your public pronouncements. I'm thinking of when you criticized uh, Barack Obama and saying he's not he's not Moses he's Pharaoh mm-hmm. and it comes down to me about you could put it like uh, the the perfect being the enemy of the good right. you could put it to the tension of working within political power it's a little easier to be a critic than a president is my point I ain't no doubt about that bro yeah I mean I, I acknowledge it and I say that uh, but that doesn't mean however even if the good is the perfect is the enemy of the good. Uh, let's even when we get rid of that, we still got to have some critique. What about okay. self critique, right? That I think, and is that's good. where I occupy. I don't. I'm not. I look. I wasn't one of these guys going after him 
calling him names. I ain't going to name no names. Uh-huh. And dogging him. I defended him every day on MSNBC. I defended him against white bigots. I defended him. So I wasn't that guy about the perfect. However, I want you to be better. Mm-hmm. I, like LeBron James sitting at the microphone saying, be better tomorrow. <laughs> give me <laughs> give me the most tangibly disappointing policy Obama either took or didn't take or took up too late. I mean, why give us Brothers Keeper? Are you joking? That is not public policy. That's kumbaya, we shall overcome. Let's get uh, money from private industry. You can do that when you leave office, bruh. Mm-hmm. You're in office now. Go to Israel and Palestine. Hey, let's have a um, kumbaya meeting and let's figure out a way to have my brother's keeper. No, we need public policy. I said, sir, this is where you and I, and he had now, this is where we disagree. He said, I do believe, I don't know if I call it rising tide lifts all boats, but I believe in that universal. I said, if the universal worked, the Constitution would have been great without the civil rights movement. That was universal. All men, right, the Declaration of Agreement, are created equal. Well, if that was good, why are you changing it up? Because the universal doesn't work. Because the universal is not universally applied. And so he didn't offer anything directly, specifically uh, geared toward black unemployment. Black unemployment under him got it shot up to 16%. If a white man was in office with 16% unemployment, black people would be in open rebellion. Black politicians would be going to the White House and marching around it like Nehemiah trying to bring the walls down. So it's not perfection. It's a realistic critique in light of our shared values. What was what was a program that helped white people unnecessarily, but helped black people less because so much of the resources were spread to white people? Well, when you look at the tarp money, when you look at the money that went, when you look at the money that went to states, the states with the most diverse populations got far less than the states with homogenous populations. You know, the rich get richer, the poor get poor. And so if you don't pay attention specifically to the harm being done to people and communities, then you're in trouble. Now, look at this. Look at the irony of this. No, 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 no. The paradox of this. Mm -hmm. So during the last election, we were told... A, you got to get up past identity politics. Is that messed it up? Hillary wants to talk about women, Obama about black people. You people are just obsessed. No, it's the universal conception of the American citizen. Oh, by the way, this was a referendum on the white working class. Huh? What, do you get the contradiction? You modified the noun with an adjective. White working class. You didn't say working class. Even working class would have been, quote, problematic. Yeah. I thought it was all American citizens. Why are you focusing on the working class? Now you're focusing on the white working class. Well, the white working class, God bless them, they need as much help as they got, they could get. But voting for a rich guy was a problem. And so at the same time that we're talking about the left is, is, is consumed with identity politics, there is nobody in this country, no group, more obsessed with identity politics politics than white people because and it's you know how they're obsessed with it because it's rendered universal the great philosopher beyonce giselle knows said (laughs) it has been said that um, that racism is so american that when we protest racism it feels like we're protesting america that's a profound point right there Mm -hmm. that's a philosophically rich notion Mm -hmm. that's a conceptual acuity that we need to pay heed to okay here's the one last question i want to ask and our listeners probably wouldn't be surprised to find out you're a preacher (laughs) and i've often seen you on talk shows i've seen you on mar i've seen you i've heard you on uh npr and you're virtuosic in your expression but i was thinking about this part in the book where martin luther king was complaining about james baldwin and he said that he was put off by the poetic exaggeration 
in Baldwin's approach to race race issues. That's homophobic. So, so my let's just be real. That's oh, just homophobic yeah. too. Right. But part of this, that is homophobic. But this is what I want to ask you. You yeah. have the ability to imbue a phrase mm. with tremendous power. Mm. But does that always mean the phrase will be the most logically tight point? And there's probably times when you just want to light a fire, and there's probably times when you want to really marshal the argument. So how do you work that? How do you decide how far to go and how grand an argument to make versus how uh, targeted an argument to make when you make your public arguments. Well, it depends on the context. Logic has never stopped the Ku Klux Klan from lynching a Negro. Yeah, but you don't want to use that as your stand. No, no, but I'm saying, well, wait, hold on. Do you know who's in the White House? Mm-hmm. Are, are you telling me the deployment of logic will I'm stop? I'm not saying it doesn't work no, no, to no. achieve your ends. Okay, I'm no, saying, no. who do you want to li- I'm how saying, do you want to live with yourself? But listen here, just because Michael George, uh, LeBron James puts the ball through his legs and around his head, he's still scoring two points. Right. My logic is is damn ironclad. My bona fide days are well established. But I got a style with it. I got swag with the logic. There is no doubt that there are multiple ways to say stuff, and it depends on the audience. Now, I was over there debating Jordan Peterson and Stephen Fry, and he, and he, he brought out the, uh, the predictable snake oil salesman. I said, oh, I'm used to white people who, when they came, when I go, go oh, what happened, what, see said, balls, uh, yeah, they, they be doing this thing all the time. When I don't talk like that, and when I talk with a kind of rhetorical command, speaking the king's English to the queen's taste, all of a sudden, I'm a snake oil salesman. I said, that's racist, as racist anybody calling me a nigga. Yeah, and when they invite you to a debate, how many mics do they have to keep on hand given your propensity to (laughs) drop them? (laughs) Bless you, my brother. Let's go out together on the road. We could kill them. Ebony and Ivory. Michael Eric Dyson is, they say, and this is true, one of America's premier public intellectuals. He teaches sociology at Georgetown. His new book is What Truth Sounds Like. RFK, James Baldwin, and our unfinished conversation about race in America. Thank you, Professor Dyson. Thanks for having me, my brother. And now, the spiel. Today, the Miss America pageant announced that it was no longer a pageant. It will henceforth be a competition. Not just an exhibition. Please, no wagering. But what kind of competition? Not a beauty competition. I guess it'll be a swell person competition. A nice gal competition. Provided that you are a gal unmarried between the ages of 18 and 28. Now, when I say it was announced that, the announcer was Gretchen Carlson, late of Fox and Friends, a former Miss America and currently chair of the Miss America organization. We have always had talent and scholarship, and we need to message that part of the program better as well. But now we're adding in this new caveat that we're not going to judge you on your outward appearance because we're interested in what makes you you. Tell us about your goals and your achievements in life. Well, they say they're not going to consider looks, but judges are only human and I find fairly judgmental. We can do better. We can do better than just asking the judges, don't consider the looks of these pulchritudinous contestants. We could use technology to make sure they don't consider the looks. Maybe an upcoming Miss America broadcast will sound like this. And here she comes now. It's Miss Oregon. Miss Oregon is wearing, we we don't know, all the contestants are pixelated this year. We can see a digitalized blur that makes us conclude she's statuesque, or maybe she's wearing one of those cat-in-a-hat type, very tall hats. Miss Oregon. And here now, Miss Ohio. Miss Ohio waves to the crowd. We think that's a wave. 
Our pixelating machine could just be on the fritz. You know, we bought it from 2020. They've gone to the heavy makeup and put the guy behind the screen way of hiding identity. We here at Miss America, we went old school because Miss America is about traditional values. Here now is Miss New Jersey. Big cheer from the Atlantic City crowd. The Atlantic City crowd are all wearing virtual reality headsets. They cannot see the competitors. Uh, these headsets are superimposing fun animal skins on the pixelated form of each contestant. But it is a sellout crowd in the arena. Actually, I am only assuming the arena is also pixelated. Okay, let's move on to the talent portion of our, of our competition, not pageant. Here, singing an aria from La Boheme, it's Miss Arkansas. Oh, yeah. We also didn't want to be singist. Some people can afford lessons, and that's really not fair. And, you know, we watch those other competitions, singing competitions, like The the Voice and American Idol, and the pretty girl usually does well in that. So we're just going to take it off the table, and we'll pixelate and, and distress the voice of the singers. Okay, next up in the talent competition, the juggling skills of Miss Florida. Ooh, she dropped it, I think. I don't know. The pixelation really gets in the way of juggling. Are they balls? Are they clubs? Oh, and this is also garbled. By the way, I can't really tell you much of anything else because I have been made to announce the show from a sensory deprivation chamber. So what are they really going to base Miss America on? It won't be physical appearance, won't be outward physical appearance, won't be a swimsuit. Here's what they're going to base it on. It's going to be what comes out of their mouth Mm. that we're interested in when they talk about their social impact initiatives. Women of all shapes and sizes. This, This all makes so little sense. I mean, for one thing, you have little girls throughout America and their moms, definitely their moms, who just want to do beauty pageants. Ah, not the girls I know, not the moms I know, but lots of girls and lots of moms. And they want to put their girls in tiaras and in makeup. And they want to do this on the local level and the state level. And they want gowns and they want hair and they want to be pretty and they want to have a pageant. And they want some of this pageant to be based on prettiness. That's what they want. But then... The ultimate goal will be to get to a national competition, which is really just a talent show with 30 seconds where you announce your social impact initiative. Your initiative, initiative means you're starting it. Why don't we do a competition where we actually assess the accomplishments of people, pretty or not, who've accomplished things in their lives and make them do a talent show for some reason. So here, she brought water to a village in Madagascar and she can juggle Miss Florida. That makes more sense than what's going on, which is a talent competition, plus, I don't know, like a GoFundMe pitch? The least effective global X prize? Look, I'm in favor, all in favor of doing whatever we can to mitigate uh, sometimes the ugly role of lookism. There I am coining a phrase. But the Miss America competition is not the venue to fight lookism. What Gretchen Carlson has announced, and I know her history, and I know the Miss America pageant had a bunch of sexist guys running it, and now you have a former Miss America who herself was harassed by the brass at Fox, though she can't discuss it because she took a settlement. That's fine. She wants to reform Miss America. I get all the intentions, but what this is is a not very progressive person's idea of progress. And really, all Miss America is is a state-level and a local-level competition where they really want to be pretty. It is three hours of network programming that can be given over to my idea of a TED Talk plus tap dancing. 
And there she goes, Miss America. Or maybe she's coming. This, this pixelation really does screw things up. And that's it for today's show. That just was produced by Pierre Bienname. His talent is yodeling and macrame. Mary Wilson, just senior producer. Her talent is puppetry and seeing the best in people. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast Talents, is Irish step dance and crossword puzzles, just so long as the Arno River isn't a clue. He always thinks it's the Poe. Jared O'Connell gave us help today. His talent is beatboxing, which in his case is actually beating a box senseless. It's just compelling to watch. The gist, our talent, spontaneous vexillology. We could draw the flag of any state or country in a minute, provided the pixelation machine is working. Umpru depru dupru. Hey, we have a new episode up of Upon Further Review. Check that out, and thanks for listening. <laughs>